Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Hey, Cracked fans. If you're a listener of this podcast, I imagine you feel fairly similar to how I do about the latest clothing options made available across the tennis market. Now, while I won't call out any brand in particular, I will say this. Given the exorbitant nature of the latest designs, feels like you better be pretty freaking good at tennis if you want to wear that sort of clothing on the court. Now, thankfully, we here at Crack Rackets are now able to provide a far more suitable, far more comfortable, and I'm going to be honest, far more stylish option for all of our Crack Rackets fans, courtesy of our friends over at Lucky Racket. Lucky Racket uses some of the best fitting and feeling tees in the world. Their shirts are combed, ring-spun, heirloom cotton, and tri-blend Bella and Canvas. I don't even know what that means, but that sounds spectacular. So, how can you get yourself some Lucky Racket gear? It's simple. Just go to their website, luckyracket.com, that's L-U-C-K-Y-R-A-C-K-E-T.com, and use our promo code CRACK15. If you do, you'll get 15% off all of your purchases. That means 15% off the shirts, 15% off all of the incredible swag offered by our friends. Again, that's luckyracket.com. The promo code is CRACK15. Welcome to the Mini Break, your date podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, December 20th. We have an action-packed show for all of you listeners today as we have some professional tennis to discuss on today's podcast. Of course, some of the top ATP players in the world competed this past week at the Mubadala World Tennis Championships. That event, of course, held in Abu Dhabi, produced some fantastic and polarizing tennis for us to discuss with today's guest. Of course, today's guest will also very much enjoy discussing two of the other biggest topics, in my opinion, from the past week in tennis. Of course, one off-court storyline that we had to touch on on this podcast, the comments of ATP President Andrea Gaudenzi, his comments about the ATP Challenger Tour, about the potential earnings growth available for players competing on the Challenger Tour moving forward, causing a stir over the past weekend. His comments are not well received. Yeah, exactly. You hear our guest already chiming in as he will certainly feel passionate about them. And look, we'll give you broader context for his comments, lay them out for you on today's show. But speaking of the Challenger Tour, we also had a Challenger Tour final right up our alley as former college tennis number one Nuno Borges took on former top junior in the world, Jason Sung. Joining me on today's podcast to cover those three topics. Again, Mubadala, Gaudenzi, and Borges Sung is a guest near and dear to our hearts here on our Crack Rackets podcast. Of course, you know him best as a writer 
for our website, crackrackets.com, for Popcorn Tennis, last word on tennis, his all-about-tennis blog. He's the man who you most want to disagree with on tennis Twitter. Always a pleasure to be joined on the show by today's guest, David Gertler. David, welcome back. How are you doing today? Doing well. I'm glad you didn't talk up uh, moving to Abu Dhabi too much. I would have had to interject if you were trying to make it seem like it was a big deal or anything. <laughs> well, we can get right into it and discuss the significance of that event. And for listeners, because sometimes we let you behind the Iron Curtain, we won't lie. David and I recorded the first 12 minutes of this podcast already. We had some technical difficulties. So this is take two. You all are hearing now. In our first intro, I described Mubadala as a significant ATP event over the past week. Now, immediately when I said those words, David jumped in and goes, significant? Are you sure? And right away we got into it. So let's start with that question here. How much value do you put on events like Mubadala? How much value do you put on any sort of non-sanctioned December tennis? Zero. <laughs> Zero? Nothing? So, Five, 1%. So here's why I disagree with you, and we can get right into it about Mubadala, is because when you look at the players we had competing, we had two of the biggest unknowns on court competing in front of our eyes here to end the season, and with Australia, David, right around the corner. And Crazy. Look, obviously, one of the biggest storylines going into that major what will Rafael Nadal look like? And he has subsequently been diagnosed with COVID-19, which obviously we are all hoping a speedy and swift recovery for Rafa so that we are able to see him compete in Australia. But, you know, we hadn't seen Rafa compete in months. And certainly you take his performance with a grain of salt, but it was great to see him back on how hard courts. How fit is he? How healthy is he? And I think Rafa's the sort of player, David, that's exhibition proof. When Rafael Nadal steps on a tennis court, you know, without a doubt, he is going to be giving 110% on that court. Rafa doesn't tank. He doesn't have that gear we in saw, him. Yeah. That's we why saw that I, in Washington. I mean, he was hobbling around the court, still grinding it out against Jack Sock, giving 100%, and, and even against Lloyd Harris, you know. He 100%. I was at that match. Like, yeah. Lloyd, while Lloyd Harris was brilliant, I can't emphasize enough. Jack Sock played so f***ing well, David. And, like, for Rafa to win that match when the entire crowd was getting behind Jack and the entire crowd was just so captivated by the match, when you could tell Rafa wasn't feeling his best, was not playing his best, Jack, uh, you know, Jack's game had begun to frustrate him. That just speaks to the attitude of Rafael Nadal, and that's why I think you put value on any time he steps onto the court. Similarly, again, one of the biggest storylines at the end of the season was the rise of Andy Murray, who didn't get the massive result, right? He didn't win another ATP title. He didn't even make an ATP final, but beating Sinner in Stockholm, beating Umber in Mets, beating Alcaraz at Indian Wells and Hercots in Vienna, those are real results. You know, those are top 40 top 20 players and how real was Murray's growth at the end of the season can he maintain that fitness continue to build upon it as he continues to not only pursue the top 100 but the top 50 top 20 second weeks of grand slams once again and of course the impetus for this podcast happened to be the tweet I fired off which I said following Mubadala I don't think it's a hot take any longer to say Andy Murray's got well if not Australian Open grand slam quarterfinal in him 
I think we got to see both of those two questions answered, and that's why, to me, Mubadala is a significant event because, like, even— and, of course, Rublev, Shapovalov, Fritz, and Rublev's another guy. The moment he steps on a tennis court, there is no wasted energy. He is there to do a job. He is there to get better. Like, that's why I value this sort of tournament. That's why I think it's significant for us to discuss. Well, can I ask you something? Let me ask you something. Um, And this was not on the first take, uh, so (laughs) get ready for this. Um, When is the last time you, so you have him saying it's not a hot take for him to go to the quarterfinals. Do you know the last time in an ATP or in any event that Andy Murray won more than two matches in the same tournament? Ooh, I'm going to say when he won his ATP title back in Antwerp. Well, it was the BALA Challenger in in, uh, in, Back uh, in February. February. Yeah. Yeah. And besides that, you know, there really wasn't many times. It, um, Antwerp was the last time he won three in a row, or I'm sorry, where at an ATP event, he won three in a row. Um, it, so again, and I don't see him making that big jump for that reason. You know, he hasn't shown an ATP event, so I don't see it at a grand slam. And then also here's what I kind of said to you on Twitter. I said, look, He's going over three hours regularly in ATP event two out of three. For a guy with a metal hip going over three hours nonstop, you mentioned, uh, we've talked about um, Francis Tiapo and Andy Murray, for instance, three hours, 45 minutes. Uh, Schwartzman was a straight setter, but he went over an hour each set. You know, those type of, you know, every set seems to be a battle. And in the Australian Open heat, in the U.S. Open humidity, I just don't see him doing it. Tayo four matches in a row. Not to mention that the tour is so deep nowadays. I think it's deeper than it's ever been before. Let's look at the round 100 in the world, okay? 99 is Sebastian Baez, who's had an amazing year. Marco Cecchinata, French Open semifinalist, is 100. Uh, Oscar Ate racked up the challenger wins served amazingly 101 andrea seppi at an incredible us open 102 and holger rune is 103 who we've gushed about and who you had a great podcast with um the death in the tour is just unbelievable right now and i just don't think that there's going to be those easy matches for andy to ease in and maybe win in an hour and a half two hours two and a half hours what do you think i think those are both excellent points and again even in the straight set wins two hour 15 minutes over sinner two hour 15 against tommy paul the next day and yeah 206 against alcaraz 240 against hercots 213 against schwartzman 207 against virev three hours three minutes at three sets against carlos alcaraz you're right Andy Murray has always played a physical brand of tennis, and there is certainly depth right now in men's tennis. That said, it's a couple of things. A, I think there's still room for Andy Murray to get better. And you look at the serving numbers for him last season, he was at 80.9 hold percentage. Now, that's a percent below his career average, but it wasn't bad. And, you know, that's right around the tour average for a top 50 player. And I think we saw him being more aggressive with his plus one forehand, incorporating serve and volley, and just trying to shorten points, make things easy for himself in his service games. 
I think that was an important development. And look, he's serving better this year by the percentages than he did in 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020. We saw growth for him on while holding. But of course, the biggest area for him in growth is the break, is the return of serve. And you look at his break percentage, 22%, second lowest number of his career, 9% below his career average. And let's be clear, you know, Andy Murray's number, his career break percentage, 31%. Djokovic, I think, is at 31.8. Rafa, I think, is at 31.3. Then you've got Andy Murray at 31%. Statistically, anecdotally, he is one of the two, three best returners, maybe four if you want to throw Agassi in there, in tennis history. He struggled with that return of this serve comparatively to his prior self this season. And that's because, you know, again, from a movement perspective, it was a little bit more difficult for him to track down the plus one forehand. It was a Definitely. little bit more difficult for him to dig out of that backhand corner. Now, I know this was not the vintage version of Rafa. Certainly, Rafa struggled in particular on the return of serve and with, you know, finding the proper footwork, proper timing on the plus one ball. And yeah, Andy took advantage of that fact. But the backhand slice is gone for him. And it's just he's swinging through that side of the court now. He's dictating with that wing once again. No, you hate that backhand slice. (laughs) Well, he dominated Dan Evans. And it was twofold. A, the backhand slice of Dan Evans, it didn't hurt Andy Murray at all. His fitness, his speed, his footwork were back to the point where, oh, you're going to give me slice? You're going to give me time? Okay, I'm going to make you pay. I'm going to go inside-out forehand, inside-in combo. I'm going to move forward behind an approach shot. And just he was going to swing through his backhand again, go cross-court, go down the line, go short angle. You're right. I'm not the biggest fan of the backhand slice, but it's particularly with someone like Andy Murray who swings through that ball so well, and he's swinging through it well again. Again, what was it? Three and one against well, against yeah, Dan Evans in straight sets against Rafa. I'm just trying to say, I know he, you're right. He ran out of steam a little bit in the Andre Rublev match, but his level looked real once again. And I just think I, I, you looked at the level of competition, the players he was playing, the competitive matches he was playing. You're telling me, and this gets to part two of the argument, and I apologize. I'll get off this rant. And again, this is a new part for you. A, and I could look this up, but you know, how many five-hour matches have been played at Wimbledon over the past decade? And you know, part two of that is how few grass court repetitions do so many of the depth that's emerging on the ATP Tour, but the young guys like the Baezes, like the Runes, even you know the Shapovalovs and you know FAA's Demon Hours of the world, they've barely played grass court seasons because of this pandemic, because of this youth. Andy Murray made the third round this year of, of Wimbledon playing bad. Like, he was not good at Wimbledon. I, even though he made the third round, I was more pessimistic about his return, seeing the slices, seeing the gimmicks he had to do to survive, than I was maybe entering the tournament. He's a completely different player now. And it's just, I guess the theory I would pose at you is just like, you're telling me he can't beat all of those guys like a Surindolo or whatever it may be at Wimbledon? I don't buy that. No, no, I think I just, he's that no, good no, no, again. No, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that like the French Open for Chechinado and uh, for Sarah. But there's four Grand Slams, David. It's like okay. Wimbledon plus two hard court opportunities. I could see him catching lightning in a bottle in a first week. Well, you know, the thing about last year, you, you mentioned, you know, in grass, you know, maybe you, know, you don't see those long matches. He still played over seven hours in his first two grass in first right. and second round of Wimbledon. But he had a day month. off. He did, but he clearly ran out of steam against Shapovalov in the third round. Um, And and you mentioned all these, you know, how he's being more aggressive, which I agree to an extent, but it hasn't really reduced the length of the matches, has it? 
I think it has to an extent. Like, I, I think to your point, you're right. He needs to continue to get more efficient. But I think if you watched Mubadala, again, go watch the Dan Evans highlights. Go watch. First of all, just go watch the first 30 minutes of the match against Rafa. The intensity between these two. Boy, David, was it fun to see them share a court once again. And I know, you know, forever the anecdote for Murray will be it's the JV Novak Djokovic. But, like, to see the Nadal forehand go into the Murray backhand, what a fun freaking contrast. To see the way Andy Murray says, thanks for the topspin, Rafa. I'm just going to use that and guide the ball to land on the baseline every time. Like, Murray's ability to absorb and redirect. Oh, was it fun to watch those two share a court? And that's why I put value in it because the intensity was real. And it's just like, I don't care if this isn't the best version of Rafa. Murray beat him. Murray beat Dan Evans. And like, you're not going to have to beat Nadal, Evans, and Rublev back to back to back probably to get to a Grand Slam quarterfinal. Though with his ranking, he actually might have to do that. But I do think like if he played a Tiafo, you know, uh, a Rublev, oh, that's too much. Like a Tiafo. I'm trying to think, a Giron, a, I don't know, a Davidovich Fokina, and then a Shapovalov. I do think he could win those four matches consecutively. You know, the thing thing about, you mentioned Dan Evans a lot. How much stock in Dan Evans, you know, for a finesse player like Evans in his first match of the year, do you put that win, you know? It's fair. It's very uh, fair. You know, I... Yeah. I just, you know, I don't, I, I can see him wait. I can see him pulling a big upset like he almost did at the U.S. Open against Tsitsipas. But do I see him? I just don't see him doing it consecutively time and time again. I think that's maybe where we differ is I can definitely see him playing, you know, you talk about the first 30 minutes against Rafa. That's just a burst though. The, to win a Grand Slam, you have to be con- that consistency or match after match, hour after hour. Um and I just don't know if he can produce that high level of tennis Fair. for those periods of time. So here's my counter is he couldn't back in June. He got a lot closer come September, come October. And this is why I'm putting value in this Mubadala result. He put it together. Like he put together two very complete matches. And you're right. It's two exhibition-ish matches. But he continues to put it together, and he continues to look better. And that's why I value this performance is because Andy Murray no longer wastes a single second on the tennis court. He looked that good. I mean, at that good. He looked like a top 20 sort of player here this year. And again, I, that's why I just think whether it's the hard court slams, whether it's Wimbledon in particular, I just don't think it's a hot take to say a quarterfinals in the cards. Okay, you know— uh, if you said round of sixteen, I would probably buy it. Okay, so I would. I would, no, I would. I would. I would accept it. I wouldn't buy it. No, for the Quarter record, finals is a step too far. For me. That fourth win is the hardest freaking win to get. I that is so, completely fair, and I think that's it, it. It sounds like it's an arbitrary line. Round of sixteen, quarterfinals. It's absolutely not. So I think that's a fair disagreement. We can agree. And I to think disagree. also you have to remember the you know in the round of sixteen the level of competition is ramped up big no, time. Precisely. You know, not saying you know, the the level of like I said earlier the level of competition is high from the beginning. But once you get down to that round of sixteen, that second week, that's when things really can get tough. And he's not going to be playing. He won't get you know a Serendolo on on grass in that type of scenario. Yeah. No. I mean, totally fair. Um, and of course, that's when the fatigue of the first week you start to feel it the most. That said, 
that would be one of my spicy takes. All right, as we run through the rest of Mubadala here quickly, your takeaway from Rafa's performance, he obviously gets a win in his first match. Uh, you know, it gets knocked out ultimately by Andy Murray, but I actually thought when you look uh, for Rafa overall on the week, uh, did Rafa get a win? Excuse me, he actually did not get a win. He loses in straights to Murray and then uh, drops that third set breaker. That's what it was to Shapovalov in the third place match. That said, I thought he got better as the as the you know weekend progressed and considering we haven't seen him play in a couple of months I mean he still looks like Rafa like it's still within a standard deviation of Rafa I think he cleans up the footwork cleans up the serve cleans up the plus one ball like he got better throughout the course of each of his matches and I you know again do you feel like when the Rafa drop-off happens it's going to be immediate like the moment he's just too injured to maintain that brand of 110 percent physicality it falls off a cliff somehow we're still not there yet David yeah you know the thing about Rafa is it really does take you know he's always emphasized over the course of his career you know it takes him a while to kind of find his game find his form find his fitness um and for me I don't expect, you know, he lost two matches. I don't really think that matters in the long scheme of things. As long as, you know, he's getting to where, and I know COVID's a setback, but at least it's not an injury, you know. Um, at least he's not, you know, another, you know, at least it's not his foot again. Um, and so for me, you know, then yeah, he lost the two matches, but I think for Rafa, and I think the way he and his coaches see is just part of this longer process that's preparing him for the, you know, for the Australian Open, ultimately, probably for the French Open, which is his his best chance. To your point, he looked rusty, not not healthy. And like, okay, Rafa's rusty. Give him a week. Like, I I couldn't echo that sentiment more. It's about the slow buildup for him, and that's why I think getting these matches was valuable. Of course, obviously getting COVID, we're wishing him that speedy, healthy recovery. Uh, But certainly that will be a setback for his preparation for Australia. You know, any other takeaways? Watching Rublev, I thought he looked good. I think a lot of people are selling stock on Rublev given the ending of his season. But, like, you know, again, let's be clear. Andre Rublev was a clear qualifier for the ATP year-end finals. You look for Rublev overall on the season, was still able to rack up, you know, 54 wins, was still, you know, above his career averages in both hold percentage, break percentage. Now, the break percentage took a step back from what it was in 2020, um, but I do think, like again, don't sell your stock on Rublev. Why is it? Like, you know, should he I, I look agree. at this Dominic team? Should he look at the Dominic team injury right now and view that as a cautionary tale? Maybe not play seventy-seven matches again in twenty twenty-two with full one hundred percent intensity. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because again, Rublev's got that Rafa gear to him. When he steps on the court, he's swinging one thousand percent at everything. That said, like. I still think the backhand continues to get better. And, like, to see the athleticism of Andre Rublev continue to improve and just the movement, the fluidity, he went from someone who I was worried would be too stiff to find that first forehand to get his weapons uh, and get into his plays against elite competition. I no longer fear that. I I really don't. Elite competition, though? No, look at that Chapo match. Like, I thought he moved really well against an informant locked in Dennis. I'm talking on the biggest stages of the game. I've never seen Rublev get like that big slam win. I mean, you? which which win could you point to? I would point. And that's to why I'm always going to be a little bullish on him until I see it. Well, I, I would point to the fact that a he's made multiple slam quarterfinals now. Who's he point. beaten to get there? 
Well, I mean, you can't control the draw in front of you. You look for him. I mean, this season, I, certainly the win over Casper, yeah, it was a retirement, but it's aged well over time. You look for him at Wimbledon. I mean, yeah, it was a pretty good win. I mean, but he's beaten who he's supposed to beat. Like, I guess Berrettini, U.S. Open 2020, like to beat him in four sets. That was a pretty good win. That was a pretty good win. But, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, for instance, he had a chance for a huge win against Medvedev at the Australian Open last year. And then he he folded like a cheap 10. Okay, so, but what about, again, Ber- he's beaten Berrettini at the Slams. He's beaten David Goffin at the Slams. He's beaten Tsitsipas and Kyrgios when they were seated at the Slams in 2019. What year did he beat Goffin? So he beat Gofen 2020. He beat Kyrgios Tsitsipas Simone back in 2019 to make the fourth round before losing to Berrettini. I'm just going to... He beat Dimitrov and Gofen back in 2017 to make the quarterfinals. I'm just throwing a hard disagree at you, David. We've seen him get the big win. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I will... I just don't think he's at that top... I mean, I, he's a solid, you know, top 10 player, but I don't... I just... Don't you know he's not in that upper 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 echelon. Well, I just don't think he's got the this. And again, we're talking about the elite of the elite here. His serve, his forehand are elite. They will be the biggest weapons on the court against ninety nine percent of professional tennis players, of players in the top one hundred as well. Well, maybe not ninety percent, but ninety percent of top one hundred players. The difference is Zverev, Medvedev, obviously Novak Djokovic. They've got a plan B. When the serve's not working, when the forehand's not working, they have other things they can do to win points. I think Rublev continues to get better at those other things, whether it's the volleys, which have taken clear strides, whether it's the backhand, which has gotten better as well. Now, again, as it relates to Mupadala, I just think he continues to look more fluid, and that sort of growth is what I'm counting on. Like, again, just it's not going to be all at once. Finding that plan B, getting defensive for him, it might be a 26, 27 years old sort of thing. But he's certainly got the plan A to compete with everyone. I think he continues to round out B, C, and D. I think that's a you know that's a good way of putting it that I didn't maybe think of. Yes, he has the plan A, but the plan B that like a the top of the top have he just doesn't have yet. And and I emphasis on yet because I think you know with every year you know I I don't think he's done developing as a player at all. But I'm just not you know I'm just not seeing him as a slam contender yet at all. Well. Again, happy to agree to disagree there, and I agree there was definitely some burnout for Rublev down the home stretch of the season, so would like to see him more conservative. I thought Shapo looked good. He looked locked in, and again, man, is the ball coming off of Denis Shapoval's racket. It just sounds different than everyone else's, David. He's so explosive in everything he does. I am continuing to buy stock in Denis Shapovalov, like, again, has, I think Rublev's a pretty good model for him, like, plan A for Shapo looks really, really good, and I think he has the athleticism to pull off B, C, and D, now that the swings are pretty big, and obviously he wants to be on his front foot swinging aggressively, but, like, it's gonna click for Shapovalov for one season in this decade, whether it's 2024 or 2027, whenever it may be, and, like, he's got the weapons as well. Yeah, you know, with Shapovalov, I know he had a very rough end to the yeah. 2021 season, but he was much close. You know, he was in the well, he went really deep in Wimbledon, and that match against Djokovic was a lot closer, maybe, than the, even the score indicated. He could have easily been up two sets to one there. Um, he kind of he showed his youth, but there was just so much, you know, there's you can't. You can't do like you have to have a certain level of raw talent to hit the ball the way he hits. Like 
you just can't coach that. Like you can't. What, what's the saying? You can't. Uh, yeah, you can't teach that. You can't teach that. That's what I'm thinking of. That forehand, that the way that he can hook his lefty serve. Um, I just, you know, I'm still high on him, and I really do think that he has perhaps even a higher upside than Rublev. I know Rublev may probably is a much higher floor, but in terms of upside, I think that Shapovalov's game is perhaps uh, more explosive than even Rublev's. Yeah, I think that's an excellent take. I have do you, no, you agree? Um, yeah, yeah I, agree. Oh, I just wow. think he's a better athlete, and I just think that fluidity, you can't teach that combination of power and fluidity, and there's enough of a tennis player there that, like, yeah, the upside is just tremendous. Like, there's enough feel and enough. I, I agree with you. I just think the best version of Denis Shapovalov can beat any. I mean, for both those guys, sure, can beat a lot of people, but, like, Denis, just the explosiveness, and he's a lefty, and it's just like... Yeah, that really does help. That's no, like really underrated. Hundred <laughs> percent. You have to throw that into the equation. So I don't disagree. All right. With that said, oh by the way, why is Mubadala's significant event, David? Because we can get twenty six minutes out of it on the podcast. That's the other reason why. Um, well, but we can all right. get twenty six minutes out of it. <laughs> yeah, that's, so, that's true. But hey, that counts. That's significant. Um, anyways, with all that said, two other topics for us to discuss, and we'll do them. I suppose on the quicker side, let's start with comments from ATP president Andre Gardenzi, who of course gave an interview uh, over the course of last weekend. I believe it was in uh, or two FT. He says in the Challenger Tour, and this might be a translation, but in the Challenger Tour, you should be able to break even and pay your costs. But you have to be conscious that this is sort of like a university; it's an investment. Yeah. Then go and move into the Pro Tour where you have a job. More from Gaudenzi. I don't think it will ever be possible to have a sustainable tour at that level, referring to the Challenger Tour, simply because it lacks the interest of the fans and the engagement of the sponsors, broadcasts, broadcasters, and ticket revenues. Now, there's a lot to unpack in that statement, David. The second one bothers me more than the first one. Well, so here's... Do you want to start with the order of the statements, or do you want to start? Well, yeah, let's sure. We let's just go piece by piece. Okay. In the Challenger Tour, you should be able to break even and pay your costs. Fair. True. But you have to be conscious that this is sort of like a university. It's an investment. Then go and move into the Pro Tour where you have a job. Now, the uh. ending of that first sentence is atrocious. Then go into the, move into the Pro Tour where you have a job. I mean. Come on I mean, now. it is You're kind t- of like in university in the sense that mm-hmm. you don't want to stay there. You get what you need. You learn your skill. You know, I understand that. Develop. But it's it's a is a minor league baseball player a professional baseball player? Is that a full time job? Yes, I, maybe the university. Maybe yeah. Maybe it should be like no. It's, like a minor league it's not the it's not the university comparison. I have issues with. I don't mind that. Like that's whatever. And by the way, go to college tennis. This is a ringing endorsement for why you should go play the college. This tells you the ATP's in investment in you. Unless you're a top 100 guy right away, they don't care if they're not going to care about you. Go worry about your development. Go and do- develop on someone else's dime in college. That said, here's what pisses me off, David. Then go and move into the pro tour where you have a job. That's true. That's if we want to develop top 100 players, they're going to have to move through what is essentially, and I don't like this pejorative, but the minor league system that is Challenger and the ITF. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, it gets to statement number two, the engagement of sponsors, you know, the lacks of interest of fans and the engagement of sponsors, broadcasters, and ticket revenues. That's pretty much saying, you know, we are – so here's – they're trying to put the onus of their horrific marketing 
of the Challenger yeah. Tour, of the ITFs. They're horrific ma- marketing. They do not give, you know, a rat about what's happening at that level, at the highest levels of the ATP Tour. And that's not to say there aren't people who are killing themselves every day to try and promote the ATP Challenger Tour because there absolutely are. But that is Gaudenzi trying to place the ball and say, well, you Josh guys aren't Marcellus, interested enough. Uh, yes. Being the main one, yeah. Exactly. But they're trying to say, well, you're not interested, so why would we raise our marketing level? And that's absolutely asinine. But again, it's it's indicative to a broader conversation of how many professional athletes, you know, what is the role of professional tennis? Who should be getting paid? How many people should be getting paid? You know, what should our expectations be of professional sport? And I think, and I apologize for ranting, David, I swear to God, I'm going to let you talk at some point. But I think that's a valid conversation. I think if you want to say, should tennis really be, you know, should the ATP Tour be offering hugely sustainable salaries to more than 500 people? Is it, you know, can any sporting league responsibly be expected to be the fuel for 500 people? Whether it's, and again, look at the media deals. It's You can't make direct comparisons to the NBA, to the NFL, because they get a much larger portion of TV revenue and they draw in larger amounts of fans, it seems True. like, week in, week out from the ratings than professional tennis does. So it's not fair but to the, hold them to those. The, uh, yeah, I guess the... Well, here's the broader thing. Is I think that's a fair conversation to have, David. How many people should be sustained by the professional tours? How many people should reasonably said, well, you're a pro athlete. You shouldn't have to worry about any of your expenses. You should make a comfortable living at this degree of success. If you're the 400th best person in your job, you shouldn't have to worry about where your next meal is going to come from. I think that's a fair conversation where that line should be. But to say people pursuing professional tennis on the Challenger Tour is not a job that yeah, go and move into the pro like that is ass- it's just the fundamentally the worst possible place you could start this conversation from yeah because especially from that marketing perspective it's like are you kidding me you're not even you're just devaluing the product that really shouldn't be if you watch enough challenger dennis you realize it's just as good as most of the 250 and 500s you say um it really is and then to just demean the players that have really worked their up in front of uh sparse crowds and to just call it not a job i just really can't imagine that the atp director um you know that the atp president or chairman would ever say something like that even if he privately thought that is condescending and ridiculous as it is right away you've alienated anyone not ranked in the top 100 and just like what where do you want this conversation to go from here you have proved adversarial when you are saying go and move into the pro tour where you have a job what you are saying is the challenger tour is not the pro tour it is not an actual job it is in, in it is an apprenticeship for those and those who pass the apprenticeship get up to the top level well that's ridiculous and i'm sorry but like how do you expect the nuno borgeses of the world the jason sungs of the world well hold on there players, the yeah. talon greek spores of the world okay, to get yeah. into the top 100 it's just yeah. they have to and to, I, I like how you're already getting hesitant it's like well those guys don't have top 100 upside that's not the argument we're having here david <laughs> it's the argument of how can we even find out if those guys have the talent to become top 100 players if they're not able to sustain themselves along the way and it's just yeah. – to me, again, you're saying those guys aren't professionals, that those guys don't have jobs. They're pursuing a passion that has not yet bared fruit. Like yeah. that to me is what's so asinine. And to your point, it is so condescending and just uh, the worst 
you right away you're revealing your mindset of I am for the top 100. I'm worrying about the top of the game. I am not worrying about how to grow the game at all levels. And just fundamentally, you cannot have that mindset as chairman of the ATP. That's just unacceptable. Especially, I mean, we're, we've been talking a lot about the first quote. <laughs> the second quote is even worse. Um, it's. I don't think it will ever be possible to have a sustainable tour at the level because it lacks the interest of the fans, just to repeat, the interest of the fans and the engagements of the sponsors, broadcasters, and ticket revenues. Well, who's responsible for driving interest of the fans? Who's responsible for driving engagement of the sponsors, broadcasters, and ticket revenues? It's you, Andrea Godenzi. You're supposed to be the one trying to make it so there is more engagement from sponsors. There is more interest from fans. There are more ticket revenue, you know? And, you know, I had I had a friend that went to the Las Vegas Challenger recently um, and he loved it. It was he said it was so cool to see these players up close. Um, It's just and I really do feel like that once you get fans there, it's it's, uh, you know, it's easy to keep get them interested and get them engaged. It's just getting them there in the first place. And I think part of the problem is what's to kind of get into the maybe my ideas uh, for how we can help Um, beyond, you know, one of the things that I was thinking of is think about where our challengers are, are our challengers in the, at least in the United States in big cities, are they in tennis hotbeds, you know, where is Charlottesville is champagne, you know, the facilities are there, but should we have more in like a Southern Florida? Should we have more in California than we already do? You know, should we have, you know, is, you know, is really champagne the best place to drive interest in a challenger? Yeah. It's, I mean, I do like college town challengers. I love the investments made by champagne, by Knoxville, by Charlottesville over the years. And they've fostered tennis communities in those cities by, you know, interlooping college juniors, challenger level events. And I think that's the healthiest way to do it. Well, I think everything they're they're doing in Charleston as well is super, super impressive. Just working across levels to, again, engage the community and say, you're going to see this person at the ITF level this year. Give it two years. You'll see them on the main stage at the WTA. What about like in Los Angeles? If we had like, I don't, there's no Los Angeles challenger. Do you have any? Where's the interest? Where's the the problem is someone's got to put up the money. So again, this gets into. This gets into. Well, exactly. And God love Oracle. And, you know, again, the passing of Mark Hurt was no in a was no doubt a, a, a horrible thing for the tennis world because his investment, not only resource wise but just passion for the sport, is why Oracle got into all of those things. There's no right. denying that. And just you know, again, that said, to your broader point, just reimagine. Here's the thing: there's no case study. Prove to me that a marketing dollar. You know, going into promoting a challenger tour event is less effective than the marketing dollars I know go into ATP Tour 250s, go into ATP Tour 500s, go into the Masters and, you know, the the Grand Slam events. Obviously, those events get a larger share of the television revenue, but those are the, the events that we have highlighted as the granddaddies of them all. I don't know. Like, again, if you offered a better system to incorporate challenger players more quickly into the ATP Tour other than just the rank 
rankings, whether there's, you know, the, the five winningest players on the Challenger Tour get three main draw wild cards into ATP events the next season, things like that, and just offering carrots along the course of the Challenger Tour as you go, having the Challenger Tour finals again like they used to a couple of years ago and just promoting those players who are the rising stars. I think all of those things are valuable. Obviously, the Challenger Tour, the ITF, is the lifeblood of much of the gambling uh, revenue that (laughs) we talk hypothetically about tennis getting, but I just, where is your evidence for the Challenger Tour simply lacks interest of the fans, engagement of sponsors, broadcasters, and ticket revenues? Because... I have not seen conclusive evidence, and that's the thing that's always so frustrating about the ATP is they make these statements, and then they never back them up, and it's just like, how can we take this seriously? Like, obviously, we are the most passionate, and we are – we are the ones who are the biggest fans of the Challenger Tour, and we live in that bubble. I do think it's fair to say the Challenger Tour does not have the fans, the adulation of, obviously, the Grand Slam events. No doubt about that. But I don't think it's the lack of interest that's the symptom of the lack of prize money invested in the Challenger Tour. It's the lack of investment in the Challenger Tour that creates the lack of engagement from the broader tennis community. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of fans might go, but they just don't even know the events are going on. Exactly. Uh-huh. Until you find Livestream.com backslash ATP, you don't even know that every Challenger match is pretty much available. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, you're right there. And it's... You know, and this that type of attitude is not going to change anything. And then he can point to, oh, there's just a lack of interest. Well, it, you know, you're not doing anything about it to keep making that point. What's, you know, broadcasters, you know, it's nice to see some little tennis channel showing challengers this week. How can we get that more consistent um, when there's even ATP? Can it, can, ten, can challengers... In these on the women's side, if we want to talk about that too, the broad, the bigger ITF events because they don't have a, they kind of have a challenger tour, I guess. Um, can you know that be a part of the center court coverage? Um, should that be a part of the center court coverage? What do you think about that? Like, should the center court include challenger matches? No, I think it's a very it's a it's a good question to ask. I mean, ideally, tennis cha- free idea here, but they've heard it a million times. Like, where's the red zone action? Just give me the match that's closest to finishing across the world at all times. Give me that one feed that I'm looking for. And yeah, of course you continue to have the individual feed so people can watch the events and the players that they want to follow most closely. But like, even if it's not just a direct challenger feed on Tennis Channel or TC Plus or any of those features, which of course I agree with you, it would be fantastic to have, throw two. 17, 18-year-old Holger Rune just won his fourth challenger title. You're telling me the people who use TC Plus and more broadly are watching Tennis Channel throughout the day don't want to see that match point, don't want to follow that story? I agree with you. It's across the board, but why doesn't Tennis Channel stress it? Because the ATP doesn't stress it. Like, if they're not going to give marketing dollars, why should Tennis Channel? That's a good point. I guess if the ATP doesn't, yeah, I mean, good point. And I guess it all comes from... Well, again, this I mean, attitude is just—it's the right guy for the job. Well, it's just a horrible place to start the discussion because I do yeah. think there were good things Andre Gaudenzi was looking to do, and there's a reason he was able to—you know—with the backing of certain people. And we don't have to get into all the player council politics, but there's a reason he got the job. This is anti- yeah, and I guess antithetical. We, we to also all should of note that. we should we should also note that this was translated, correct? So. Yeah, and it's one interview, one transcription. But here's the concerning thing, David. 
he hasn't cleaned it up since. No. Like, we haven't seen the follow-up interview where he said, I was completely misconstrued. Here's what I meant. We haven't yeah, seen that. True. To me, that tells me he's fine with it. He's like, look, I'm trying to get a harsh truth out to the people, and it's just a harsh truth based on a false premise. Yeah. And to talk about the the uh, the conflicts of interest, I mean, that's basically what Dennis is founded on, right? I mean, isn't Mary Jo Fernandez one of the uh, you know ESPN commentators? Isn't she uh, married to Godsick, who's Federer's agent? Yeah, yeah. I mean, no, how is I that possibly I mean, acceptable? Well, what do you? I, I don't see. I disagree with you there. Mary Jo Fernandez, on her own, is qualified to be a commentator. That she's married to Tony Godsick is something that would be nice to hear from them about more frequently. But I don't think that's an insane conflict of interest. Do you like, think should that she, she should be called? Why should she not call Roger? Like, should she not call Roger Federer matches? Probably. I mean, I is don't know. I, mean, I don't reason, think so. If it, can she call a player who's not repped by Gaudet, uh, by Godsick? Like, absolutely. I have no problem with that. But Darren Cahill can't call any uh, women's matches, correct? Uh, well, I think he back can Back when he coached. Yeah, yeah well, he back when he coached. But I don't think Mary Jo ever called the Federer match, did she? I don't know. I, I'm just talking about that. I don't know. I yeah, so false. No, false claim. Just... Don't take a shot at Mary Jo. I'm a big Mary Jo fan. Um, anyways, <laughs> point B, oh, fantastic person as well to meet in person. She's been way too kind to us. But anyways, all of that said, conflicts of interest are clear. I just think, again, more broadly – Poor place to start a discussion that is certainly needed more broadly in tennis. But all right, with that said, final topic, and we're actually going to get through this one in three minutes or less. Borges Sung. Obviously, for uh, Chin uh, Sun Sung, he comes through, wins his first challenger title in Maya. It doesn't mean anything. Okay, well, relax, David. We'll get there in a second. Wins his first challenger title in Maya. That comes a week after he makes his first challenger final the uh, the week before. That, of course, is now his three semifinals for him at the challenger level on the year with his success. Uh, excuse me, four semifinals for him on the year with his success. He's worked his way into the top 200, number 188, former top junior player in the world seems to have found his footing here down the end of the season it comes back from a set deficit to knock off Nuno Borges uh 6-2 in the third let's just start with the sung side sounds like you're not impressed well Damian Koost uh, had a great he's he's I think him and I are on the same page here's the deal with these late season challengers I think they're entertaining I I, I am happy for the ones that win it but I said the same thing about Mark Tondes I said I don't think it means anything none of the you know the top players aren't playing Nuno Borges was in form but he was tired obviously from non-stop tennis over the past couple of weeks um you know, and when you're a grinder, like a young grinder, like son, you're able to take advantage of player, you know, of the field like that. And yes, he's very consistent, but the power, I don't think the power's there. And I've watched him a bunch in Maya, Maya or Maya. Um, and I, you know, he didn't do anything that made me change my opinion. Um, and same, I think he didn't do, you know, he played his game. It's solid from the baseline. It's, you know, he's not going to miss a lot. He's going to hit with good depth, but the, the power that he needs to go on, you know, to go advance to the ATP tour, it's not there. And it's, and it, I don't think with his frame, it's ever going to be there. So See, I think he's got a springiness about him. I think the best comp would be, you know, a slightly smaller Davidovich Fokina. 
Like I think he's in that model where just the athleticism pops. And I Does do he think have the versatility that Well, I think he moves the ball around the court so well. Like his discipline to go cross, cross, line, inside out, inside in, just keep you moving. I think that's how he ultimately won this match against Nuno, is he just kept Nuno off the baseline, off the center of the baseline, excuse me, and just you know, because Nuno had the bigger weapons. And I think Nuno's forehand in particular, it's a top one hundred forehand. Like Absolutely. When he's able to set his feet, unload on that ball, it's special. And he was hitting the drop shot extraordinarily well in this match and just keeping Sung off balance with down the line backhands as well but there's a discipline to Sung I just think he's going to be really good for a really long time and again that springiness I think it's a cross between Davidovich Fokina and Miamir Kesmenovich where he's got the the springiness (laughs) well no I think there's that springiness athleticism that Davidovich Fokina has, but there's definitely the rigor, uh, you know, the rigorousness, and then also you're right, the lack of a clear top, top elite firepower, like a, a you know, like a Miamir Kasmanovich, where they move the ball really well, they're really disciplined, high floor players match in, match out. But you're right against guys with the bigger weapons their game might get exposed a little bit and the match might not be on their terms. Now, what's so impressive for me about Sung, who again, still only 20 years old at the end of this year, is that the fit, you know, he he's just so, dis- like, I just think his floor is top 100. Like, I just see the discipline oh he shows. Wow. Okay. Point in. And now, now I think his ceiling might be top 50, but I just think we're going to see him get to the ATP tour because there's a discipline about him and a movement about him, the way he both moves the ball and moves his feet, that that's just, you know, that's that's what you need in the modern game. Well, first off, I want to say I'm fully on the Nuno train now. I think he's yeah. top 50 easily material. I think that forehand you can't teach. I think his versatility on the different surfaces is fantastic. And how nice is that kick serve? I know. And he just, the serve, the forehand, you know, the backhand solid enough that, like, I'm not worried about it at all. Um mm-hmm. I'm very impressed with um, good volleyer too. Here's the deal, though. With in terms of my, my as Ga- Gaspar uh, Ribeiro Lanka said, center court in uh, Maya is much slower than the outside courts. Um, sure. And I think that if Nuno were fresh and or if you were playing on, you know, a, a little bit faster of a surface, um, he would have beaten Sung. Easily, especially if he was fresh. I don't think it's a bad – I mean, he was down a break for most of that first set, and yet it just felt like, again, when Nudo needed that break, he got it. And he uh, the match was on Nudo's terms for a lot of times. Again, when Nuno was clicking and hitting that first forehand, going – it was Nuno who was often changing direction and going down the line and being the aggressor. But I actually think – the slowness of the surface helped Nuno because he's not the best mover yet. And I think that's actually why I think he can continue to crack the top 100. It's just like, just wait till he's a top 100 athlete. He's not yet. And when he gets there, because he just like some people were meant to have a tennis racket in their hand and he's one of them. He's blessed with one of those wrists, one of those shoulders, right? Where the ball just springs. You called him a long time ago. You called it. I give you credit for that. <laughs> well, watch more college tennis, David. I've been preaching really? it for years. But sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off on Sung. You know, with Song, I mean, there's just nothing there that says, for me, there's just nothing there that he does that much better than any, like, we're talking about the death in tennis. Yeah, And let's also talk about the fact that the, the fields in Maia were weak. They were weak. They were, you know, you, you think he's going to beat a Juan Manuel Serundolo, a, ba- a Baez, uh, Oscar Ate? There's not a shot. I, if those I bet the Serundolo Song match would go two and a half hours. It would, but, you know, Swindler <laughs> has too much game. Um, 
So I think that they, you know, guys like Mark Condes, guys like uh, uh, on the, in on the hardcore uh, Ukita, uh, they are ben- just beneficiaries of basically comp- a few, almost future level fields. Um, and I just don't really think there's any there's much to take away from these matches at all, personally. That's- it's fair. Well, that seems to be the theme of the day for you. I still I'll be enjoying him. I yeah. still enjoy them. Good. That's and in the end, that's all that matters. But with all that said, I promise you a shorter pod. We're going to be under fifty minutes today, David. We'll take it. And of course, again, uh, if you missed any of those matches, if you've missed any of our coverage of all of the action happening, not only here in December on the court, but happening in December off the court as well, you can catch up on it all. On our website, CrackedRackets.com, of course, like, rate, subscribe, review to this show, The Great Shot Podcast, our Cracked Interviews Podcast, which, as David mentioned, you can go here directly from one of the breakout stars of 2021, Holger Rune. Had the chance to chat with him on Sunday. It was fantastic to get that opportunity. Of course, you can hear from countless college tennis Power 5 coaches, can hear from all the great guests we've had the chance to speak with by like, rate, subscribing, reviewing to you know all what of I like our about shows. Them? Alex, please give me the, the They're really showing you appreciation for your hard work. Oh. And I really think that's great to see. My ego is through the roof. I'm baking that none of them are going to listen to Minute 49 of the Mini Break podcast on a random Monday. But, yes, mm-hmm. it has been immensely flattering, and I'm extremely grateful. Again, it's the lifeblood. It's 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 a feedback loop, right? Like, the more positive feedback I get, the more I'm like, all right, I'll keep doing <laughs> these interviews because it, it's a great time. But, no, I'm immensely grateful for all their efforts as well. And, again, I'm telling you. If more players want to come start playing college tennis, David, that's not a bad thing. It's a very fun format that I think a lot of tennis fans can get behind as it grows on them. But, of course, if you want to read or hear more about college tennis, it's all available at the website, CrackRackets.com. Of course, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, at CrackRackets. You can message me directly at GreatShotPod. You can message David directly at TennisBlogger1. Speaking of which, David, final word goes to you. Anything we should be aware of? Any Any work we should be on the lookout for? Is this where I say that's the break? <laughs> no, not quite yet. Was, any, any, uh, that's funny though. Any, any work, any uh, articles oh, um, dropping soon? No, nothing. Uh, let's see. Oh, I should. I, I, I've been talking about the whole Garune article. I'm telling you, it's this week. It's coming out. I promise you. I love it. I, <laughs> I love know it. y'all are, and I know everyone here is waiting hand and oh, hand over foot for that article. <laughs> it's coming. I promise. David, I haven't watched a single Pelicans game since as I've waited for this article. So, yeah, I have a hand in foot. But, no, of course, they can find it all at Tennis Blogger 1. A shout-out, as always, by the way, super producer Daniel Westoff for the of an editing job he does day in, day out. Shout-out as well to our friends at Tennis Point. Forgot to plug them at the top. You guys know the deal. Best equipment, best prices, best place for your holiday gifts. Tennis-point.com. Use that promo code CR15. Not only let them know we sent you there, but to get 15% off your order free, two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls, tennis-point.com. Promo code is CR15. With all that said, for my fantastic co-host, David Gertler, super producers, Fliegner and Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. David, now's the time to say it. What do we tell our listeners? That's the break. And we will see you all tomorrow. Thank you, everyone. 
Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 